0: In a famous interview with Jonathan Dimbleby in 1994, Prince Charles not only spoke about his marriage problems, but he also spoke about another problem that he anticipated if and when he were to ascend to the throne. He said that he had a problem accepting the title that has been given to all British monarchs since Henry VIII of being Defender of the Faith here's what he said in his exact words I personally would rather see it as defender of faith not the faith because it, defender of the faith means just one particular interpretation of the faith which I think is sometimes something that causes a great deal of problems then he went on it has done for hundreds of years People have fought each other to death over these things, which seems to me a particular waste of people's energy when we're actually aiming at the same ultimate goal, I think. So I would much rather it was seen as defending faith itself, which is so often under threat in our day, when you know the whole concept of faith itself, or anything beyond this existence, beyond life itself, is considered old-fashioned and irrelevant. Well, I understand it's almost certain that if Prince Charles wants to be King Charles III, he is stuck constitutionally with becoming defender of the faith. Be that as it may, however, do not his views expressed in that interview resonate with many people today in our society? Is not that which the British monarch promises to defend just one particular interpretation of the faith. And are not all followers of faith, whom the prince broadly describes or defines, as those who believe in something beyond this present existence, beyond life itself, are they not actually all aiming at the same ultimate goal? So to claim otherwise, that the way I am following is true, while the way you may be following, is false, is at best arrogant, and at worst dangerous. For as Prince Charles says, such attitudes have caused a great deal of problem for hundreds of years, and people have fought each other to death over these things. But stop and think a little more deeply with me, will you? Let's suppose that you and I are invited for a weekend at a luxury five-star hotel in the Highlands. There are such places, I understand, but this is theoretical, all right? We set off following one another in our cars. And eventually, a few miles from our destination, we come to a T-junction, and in my experience, a very familiar sight, no signpost. So we pull our cars into the side of the road. Which way should we go? We have a discussion. I say we should turn right for the hotel. But you say, no, I think we should go left. Our discussion may even turn into an argument about which way to go. Am I right or are you right? Well, it all depends on the evidence on which our opinions are based. Suppose I say, look, here's a printout... I made from the hotel website, a map of how to get there. We're at this point and we need to turn right to the hotel. In fact, it actually indicates here that the left turn leads to a dirt track and ultimately to the edge of a cliff. But you say, I just feel that left is right. In fact, I believe it doesn't really matter because I actually believe that all roads lead to the five-star hotel. Let's not fall out over this. Don't be so arrogant. Well, the choice should be obvious if these are indeed the facts. To take the left turn is dangerous, as is the view that all roads lead to the hotel, or in the words of Prince Charles, to the same ultimate goal. But you may say that's all very well for roads, but religions are a different matter. There's no website for heaven that you can log on to. No, but there is a book that claims to be the authoritative guide and the person in it who claims to be the way. After taking the oath which included promising to be defender of the faith at a coronation in Westminster Abbey on June the 2nd, 1953 Queen Elizabeth The second was presented with a Bible, a lot nicer one than this one, by the moderator, actually, of the Church of Scotland. A lot of young people weren't even alive then, but the older folk may remember. Then the Archbishop of Canterbury, giving her this book, said these words. Notice, very interesting. Our gracious Queen to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and gospel of God, as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Then he continued, Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. It is claimed then, that this book, The Bible is no ordinary book, but the word of God. And the central figure in this book is Jesus Christ, who claimed to be no ordinary man, but to be the Son of God. And in the Bible we read these words. Jesus actually, talking from my illustration, Jesus actually said this. There are two roads in life, he said. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few people find it. Matthew seven thirteen 13-14. And Jesus actually claimed, again, the record in this book, Jesus claimed to be the exclusive way to God. He said, I am the way and the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. You'll find that in John's Gospel, the New Testament, chapter 14, verse 6. So this evening then, as we conclude our series which we've called The Conspicuous Christian, it's not surprising that a defining feature, another defining feature of the Christian, the follower of Jesus, is certainty in a world in which everything is relative. On one occasion, the first followers of Jesus made this bold claim about Jesus. Listen carefully. They said about Jesus, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That's in Acts chapter 4 verse 12. So, this begs the question, were they right or wrong? And what we need to examine is the evidence upon which their claims about Jesus were based. And to see whether it stands up to scrutiny and is solid enough for us to put our faith in Jesus. And in order to help us to do this, I want to look at the incident in which that verse there in Acts 4 is found and the circumstances surrounding it. Peter and John, two of the first followers of Jesus had been involved in the healing of a crippled man who had been crippled from birth outside the temple in Jerusalem. This causes such a stir that the Jewish authorities send the religious police to bring them in for questioning. That's the background. Now let's read together. It's Acts chapter 4. If you don't have one of these most valuable books, you should get one, but there are copies of them in the pew. And it's page 1095. right I'm just adjusting the microphone Acts chapter 4 listen to the story and see the context of which this statement is made and we're just going to look at some of the evidence The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were still speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about five thousand. The next day the rulers, elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness, shown to a cripple, and asked how he was healed, then know this, You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. Took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle. We can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men not to speak any longer in this name. Then they called them in again, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, They let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our servant, your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord... Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Well, let's just pause there for a moment. Let me try, it's pretty clear from reading this, that the people in this story, Peter and John and their friends, the first followers of Jesus, were absolutely convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. They were sure about their faith, they were certain. So let me try and summarise the evidence which made them certain in the hope that if we want to have a certain faith, I want to suggest there are three foundations at least that will help us with that. The same ones that they had. Okay, here's the first and most obvious fact. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. After the death of Jesus, his followers were filled with utter despair. There could be no doubt that a crucified victim was really dead. The Romans didn't make those kind of mistakes, as people have sometimes suggested. The idea that Jesus might rise from the dead was the last thing on their minds. Instead they were afraid that they may be the next ones to be picked out by the authorities and so they hid themselves away to avoid discovery. So when reports began to filter through a couple of days later that something remarkable had happened at the tomb in which Jesus' body had been laid Peter and John and company dismissed it as rumours and women's talk. They were totally unprepared, absolutely astounded, when Jesus entered the locked room in which they were hiding. And their fear was turned to joy. In John's Gospel we read these words. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. There was no mistake, it really was Jesus. Maybe it's a ghost, they thought. Then Jesus said, touch me, give me something to eat and drink. I'm a real person. I really am Jesus, bodily risen from the dead. And this was not just a one-off occasion. For Jesus appeared to them over the next six weeks almost. And Luke informs us about this at the beginning of this book of Acts that we read from repeated appearances after his suffering he showed himself to these men gave many convincing proofs that he was alive he appeared to them over a period of 40 days spoke about the kingdom of God Acts 1 verse 3 and it wasn't just the chosen apostles of Jesus writing to the Christians in Corinth another great missionary follower of Jesus the apostle Paul reminds these Christians of the foundations on which their faith is built 1 Corinthians 15 this is what he says for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then the twelve. And then he adds, after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, many of whom were still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all he appeared to me as one abnormally born. Here he is 25 years after the event, saying there are still people who can substantiate the claim that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Now it was this absolute conviction that Jesus was alive, which was at the centre of their message, and transformed them from fearful cowards to fearless witnesses. And it was this which got them, did you notice, into such hot water with the authorities. Ostensibly, when they were brought before the officials, the issue was this man, this cripple who had been healed. But who could object to that or even deny it? Because the man was standing there. Everybody had seen him every day begging outside the beautiful gate, one of the gates into the temple. What really rattled the authorities... The rulers, elders, and teachers of the law was not what the apostles have done, but what they claimed. Look at verse 2. The cause of the controversy, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Why were they so upset about this? Well, most of them didn't believe in resurrection. They were Sadducees, a particular group of Jewish religious experts who didn't believe there was any such thing as resurrection. And they didn't believe that dead men, especially crucified men, rise from the dead. They can't because they're dead. Only God can raise someone from the dead. And if this Jesus, the very one they had crucified, had really been raised from the dead, then the claims he had made about himself were in fact true and they'd made the most dreadful mistake imaginable. that's the point Peter makes. When they call them in and they ask him, by what power or name did you do this? Notice Peter's answer. Verse 8. Then Peter full of the Holy Spirit said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and they' asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. You see, the real issue was not this that Jesus heals the real issue is that Jesus and Jesus alone saves you see all the other religious leaders before and since died have died you can see their tombs in many cases but Jesus alone has been raised from the dead by God and that was the sign that when he died on the cross claiming to bear the sin of the world God vindicated him and said that's accepted by raising him from the dead So that is why Peter goes on to make this claim. That's the connection. He says, listen, follow this through. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, our certainty about the resurrection of Jesus is not based on the same kind of eyewitness evidence they had. We don't see that. After those six weeks, Jesus returned to heaven. But it is based on the accuracy of their eyewitness evidence, which they have passed on. So, for example, at the start of his first letter, this is nearly at the end of the New Testament, one of those apostles, John, this is how he begins his his first letter, with first-hand evidence proclaimed to others. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it. And testify it. Testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And the reason John says he's telling them this, he says, so that you might have an intimate relationship with this same God through this same Jesus Christ. What the Bible calls fellowship. We proclaim to you, he goes on in verse 3, what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Now, the Christian faith stands or falls on whether Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. And it stands or falls along with this on the accuracy of the transmission of those records in the New Testament part of the Bible. Do you want to destroy the Christian faith, destroy the credibility of the New Testament, and destroy the resurrection of Jesus. People have tried over the centuries, for 2,000 years. The remarkable thing is, if you actually look at the evidence, there are countless people who have gone to the evidence and actually come back convinced of its truth and come to faith in Christ. So I simply begin by asking, do you have this firm conviction, this assurance that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead? There are all sorts of books you can read on this. You want a modern one? Then there's a book by Lee Strobel, uh, who was a Yale law graduate and a reporter on the Chicago Tribune, an atheist, who examined the evidence and came to faith in Christ, called "The Case for Easter." But there are all sorts of books you can read. There are things you can see. One of the greatest films—it's one more Oscars almost than anything else. I corrected afterwards by some of my family that the film Ben-Hur was written by General Lew Wallace who set out to prove that the Christian faith was false and that Jesus did not rise from the dead and in the end wrote Ben-Hur which really is a film about the risen Lord Jesus Christ it's an important topic so this is the first reason for certainty in a world in which everything is relative it sets Jesus apart from everyone else he declares that he's unique who he claims to be here's the second reason Trying to make these things kind of sound the same. So, if if you don't like alliteration, just ignore this. But the second reason is not just the resurrection of Jesus, but the reception of the Holy Spirit. After his resurrection, on that period when Jesus met with his disciples for those 40 days, he prepared them because he said, I'm going to leave you. But when I leave you, he said, wait, because I'm going to send you a gift. The Holy Spirit is going to come down, upon you. Acts 1 verses 4 and 5, on one occasion while he was eating with them he gave them this command, don't leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift my father promised which you've heard me speak about for John baptized with water but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said the purpose that God will give you his spirit is to enable you to be my witnesses that you will receive power When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so the disciples waited, if you don't know, many of you will know this, but if you don't know, it's recorded in the book of Acts. The disciples waited in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. And on the Jewish festival of Pentecost, the gift was received, Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together. In one place, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, here's the second piece of evidence which convinced these Christians. Certain about their faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon them as Jesus had promised. They were filled with God's Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. It was not just something they believed, it was something they experienced. And the result was they didn't just feel something, which they undoubtedly did, but they did something. They became bold witnesses about Jesus. They went out into the streets telling people that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Saviour they began immediately after receiving the Spirit they, the whole city of Jerusalem was thrown into an uproar by these men speaking in languages they had not learnt the result of the gift was powerful proclamation focusing on who Jesus is and it was accompanied by supernatural signs speaking in languages they had not learned, and in the story we read healing a man who had been a cripple since birth however the important thing was not the signs but what they pointed to what the signs signified. They were signposts pointing to who Jesus was and is. The gift of tongues provided an opportunity for people to to explain who Jesus is and what had really happened. Notice again in Acts 2 when he preaches this great sermon explaining to the people what's happened. He comes to this stunning conclusion. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And similarly, as we've seen in the story of the healing of the cripple, it was an opportunity with Peter. Notice what it says. He was filled with the Holy Spirit when they asked him how he'd done this. And he says, Know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And despite opposition, threats, persecution, nothing can shift these followers of Jesus from their convictions about who Jesus is or stop them preaching in the name of Jesus. So the authorities say to them, we can't deny this miracle, but please stop talking about Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. We cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard they were absolutely convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be and whatever the authorities said they were compelled by the power of the Holy Spirit to preach about Jesus now here's a question as we come to our own foundations for faith what about our own experience is the same Holy Spirit available to us today? well You don't have to go to an upper room to wait for the Spirit. When Peter went out in the street and preached his sermon, at the end of it he told the people, you've crucified your Messiah. People were absolutely conscience stricken. What should we do, they said. Notice what Peter said, it's very important. He said, the gift of the Holy Spirit is promised to all who repent and put their faith in Jesus. Acts two thirty eight and 39, it's a promise for all. Peter replied when they asked, what should we do? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The same gift we've received. This promise is for you, your children, all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, here's the second question. Have you turned from your sin... Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Because if you have, God has promised to give you his Holy Spirit. You see, it's possible to be convinced intellectually about the resurrection, even about the truth of the Bible. And yet, not to have made a personal commitment to Christ. And not to have received the Holy Spirit. And so, you lack certainty and assurance. Maybe you've grown up in this church as many folk have, there's a newcomer here, or you've grown up in a Christian family, or a church, and you've heard all the facts, and really, you're pretty sure you, you believe that. But you don't have really any real personal assurance, any personal conviction. And you don't have any power in witnessing about Jesus. If somebody asks you, you might with a bit of embarrassment admit you go to church. But you've no real compulsion to go and tell people that Jesus really is who he claims to be. The way, the truth, and the life. A sure sign that you've received the Spirit is that you cannot help but speaking about Jesus. No matter what others say, no matter what the embarrassment may be, you have a desire to tell other people about who Jesus is. Why? Because you're convinced it's the right way. Like in my illustration. You're worried if someone says, I think left is right, and you know they're heading for destruction. That doesn't mean you say it in an arrogant way not being certain about yourself. It's being certain about the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you received the Holy Spirit? That's the second convincing proof. All the Christians call it assurance of faith. Assurance of salvation. It's that deep inner conviction when you turn from your sin, you put your faith in Christ, and God comes to live within you by His Spirit, and His Spirit witnesses with your spirit that you belong to Christ. and You just can't explain it unless it's happened to you say, where I come from in Derbyshire, it's better felt than tell. Well, it is. It's a personal experience of the power of the Holy Spirit bringing assurance of salvation. Do you have that? So, there are two reasons. The resurrection of Jesus, the reception of the Holy Spirit. There's a third reason, coming towards the conclusion, which we see in Acts 4. Let me try and summarise it by saying, it's a recognition of God's sovereignty. Let me try and explain what I mean. After being released by the authorities... Peter and John return to their fellow believers and they report back on what's happened to them. Their response is to call a prayer meeting. Well, they don't call a prayer meeting, they just pray together. Now, it is a very interesting thing when you read the Bible, and in fact, what well, you shouldn't do it when you listen to people praying, is listen how people address God. When you start your prayers, what do you begin with? Jesus told us to pray, when you pray, say, Our Father. That's not the only term of address we can use with God. Because the early disciples here didn't use it on this occasion. There are different facets of God's character revealed by the titles that we give to God when we pray, which are appropriate to the particular situations we're praying about. So here they are, they've been threatened, told to keep quiet. Everything's in turmoil. So how do you address God in those situations? Well, if you look at Acts 4 and find the right verse, verse 24. These early Christians, Luke records, they use a particular word to address God. I'll tell you what the Greek word is, and this is not to baffle you with sounds, because you'll recognize it. They pray, O despotes! It's the word from which we get our English word, sorry, our English word is derived from that word, the word despot. You ever prayed to God, O oh, despot? Well, in English, it's a kind of word. My dictionary defines despot as an absolute and tyrannical ruler. But to understand what is meant here, just forget the tyrannical bit. It simply means to address God as the absolute ruler of everything. The NIV translates it as sovereign Lord. You see that? Verse 24, they raised their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Now, why are they praying that? Because in these circumstances, when things go wrong, and when people are against you, what do you need to know? You need to know that God is the despot, that God is in control of everything, that he is the Sovereign Lord. John Stott comments, We observe that before the people come to any petition, any request, they fill their minds with thoughts of the divine sovereignty. And he points out, you can see in this prayer, very briefly, there are three aspects of God's sovereignty that they begin with. See, often when we pray about our situations, we jump straight in with the requests. What you need to do is to start by thinking who God is and praising him for who he is, because that only affects how you pray your requests. First of all, they say, is the God of creation. You made. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them you're the creator God, you made all, made everything. Kind of puts your life into context, doesn't it? Secondly, he's the God of revelation, he said. You spoke. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Then he quotes something from years ago, Psalm 2, hundreds of years before, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. They say, Lord, this situation's happened, they're opposing us because of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, which is what Messiah Christ means, and they say, Lord, we're just thankful that this is not a mistake or an accident because your servant David spoke about it a thousand years before when he said Psalm 2, and they quote the Bible, which is why you need as a Christian to know and read the Old Testament. Because it's all there, the story. He's the God of revelation. And thirdly, he's the God of history. They say, everything's under your plan, you decided. Verse 27, indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles, the the people of Israel, in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, they say, Lord, we're absolutely certain about this. It's all in your plan. You're the God of history. You're working everything out according to your perfect will. God is in control. His plan is in place. And when you've got those assurances, then you come to your prayer requests. Because you put them in context. You're recognizing the God that you're speaking to. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They ask the Lord, Lord, you see what these people are doing. Just take notice, consider their threats. Enable your servants, literally again, the word is slaves there. Here are slaves speaking to a despot. We're just your slaves. Lord, enable us as your slaves to do what you want us to do, to keep speaking about Jesus boldly. And to vindicate the name of Jesus through signs and wonders. And what follows is further reassurance. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke the word of God boldly. You see, the result of all that happened only served to reinforce their certainty about what they were doing and who Jesus is. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought, is this like me? And after I make a confession, is it not true for many of us that when things go wrong and when we're opposed for our faith or when we're confronted and challenged by people, or things go wrong even in our lives. Does it not tend to increase our doubts rather than our certainties? If so, the reason always is that we lack the assurance that God is sovereign. And that all that has happened, all that will happen, in the world, in our personal lives, is under the control of the sovereign Lord and is part of his divine plan that centres on his son Jesus. That's why I added those two verses that we sing in Here is love vast as the ocean. It finishes up, you know, when the stars will fall from heaven. The elements ignite. Then the Son of Man in glory. There's a plan. There's what we call a meta-narrative that's traced right from the beginning of the Bible, right through to the end. Everything that happens is according to God's plan. And it fills you with absolute certainty that God is in control. That's why you need to know the Bible. It's God's Word. It's the guidebook. And he said, this is what God said would happen. And it brings us great reassurance I wonder, do you have that same conviction? I don't know your own circumstances this evening. Do you have that conviction that God is sovereign? He's working out his plan, centered on Jesus, and it's under control. No need to panic, no matter what it's on Sky News or BBC when you go home this evening. God is in control. Doesn't mean you understand all the details, doesn't mean you blouse your glib about it, doesn't mean you want distressed when you see the terrible things that people do, but you know behind it, God is working out his purposes. As year succeeds to year until the day when the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So, here's three reasons why they were certain in a world which everything is relative and we can be certain. The resurrection of Jesus happened except from the Holy Spirit and the conviction. Recognition that God is sovereign. Now if you have those things you have that certainty. Let me finish up. Almost finished. I was interested to learn from Colin Adams this week. I don't think he's a member, but he told me that there is still a flat earth society with its own website and thousands of members. I'm still trying to work out whether this is a spoof, but Colin tells me, is it not just Colin? This is genuine. There are people who believe that the whole business of the earth being a sphere is a big con and it's really flat, and if you go to the edge, fall off. They sincerely believe it's actually flat. So, are they right or wrong? Well, the answer doesn't depend actually on how many people believe it. Minorities have been right before and majorities wrong. It all depends on the evidence on which their faith is based. And so it is with the Christian faith. Let me remind you again, we've had the words it before, but once more... What are the foundations of our faith? Right into those Christians in Corinth, the Apostle Paul says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. You've you've committed your life to the truth of this. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. And these are the facts of faith. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, there's the plan, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures, and people saw it, it's absolutely true. If this is not true, then we're wasting our time in Charlotte Chapel, and every church should really just close down, it's just really flat earth stuff. But if it's true, if the claims of Jesus are true, Then you can be certain, above all else, about Christ in a world in which everything is relative. Let's pray together.